Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome bookends to a special bonus episode where we get to squeeze in another favourite read of recent times. Today we will be discussing the compelling and moving novel Salt and Skin by Eliza Henry Jones. Luda, a photographer, and her two teenagers arrive in the Scottish Northern Isles to make a new life. Little do they know that everything is about to change. A beautiful and magically immersive novel about a family on the edge and a community ensnared by history that gathers to a truly unforgettable ending. Eliza Henry-Jones is an author, freelance writer, PhD candidate and flower farmer based in the Yarra Valley in Victoria. She's the author of three adult novels and two young adult novels. Her novels have been listed for multiple literary awards, including the ABIA, NSW Premier's Literary Awards and QLD Literary Awards. Her short fiction, non-fiction and features have been widely published, featuring in the likes of The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald, Country Style and The Age. Eliza also holds qualifications in psychology as well as grief, loss and trauma counselling. Her latest novel, Salt and Skin, was published last year by Ultimo Press in Australia and New Zealand. Her latest novel, Salt and Skin, was published last year by Ultimo Press in Australia and New Zealand and was published in July by September Publishing across the UK and the US. We are delighted to have Eliza with us today to chat all about this wonderful novel. Eliza, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Thank you so much for having me. So, Eliza, we are so pleased to have you on the podcast and we have to ask you our favourite question, which is, what are you currently reading? I am currently rereading Surfacing by Kathleen Jamie. I had to pick my five top books for an interview a couple of weeks ago and it sort of reminded me that it existed and it's been a few years since I last read it so it was a treat to delve back into that. Oh wow are you much of a rereader? Do you reread a lot of books or? I've started rereading again. I Mm -hmm. used to pathologically when I was younger and then I kind of had a bit of an existential crisis which I think a lot of us have as readers and we realize how many books we can actually squeeze into one lifetime But I think these days I just want to be immersed and I want to be engaged. And if that's different books or if that's the same book over and over, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think I've always been a bit of a rereader, like my favourite books um, or books that move me, I tend to gravitate towards, especially if like, you know, if you're having a bit of a mental health dip or anything like that, it's like chucking friends on for you know the hundredth million time and just knowing what's going to happen and bringing yourself comfort from it I think that you get that from rereading a great book definitely but I know that Hannah you're not much of a rereader are you no because like you said there's so many books to read and like and you've got such a short amount of time in your lifetime to get through them all and I just get overwhelmed by how many books that I want to get to so it feels like I'm almost going backwards by by rereading something although I did reread Sally Rooney's conversation with friends before I it, it do you know what when an adaptation comes out it's like it gives me an excuse to go back and reread something before I enjoy the adaptation because it's almost like I want to keep my own ideas of the characters in my head before I have the the actors that have been cast in it before I had them imprinted so I can never go back and have the same reading experience so yeah I'm quite I'm quite weird about rereading but I'm hoping to do some more rereading at some point we shall see (laughs) (laughs) now 
On to your wonderful novel, Salt and Skin. To start us off, I would love to find out more about the inspiration behind the book. Where did the story first come to you? Um, I went to Orkney in 2017 and it was meant to be a break from writing. Um, I didn't even have my laptop with me. And we went to St Magnus Cathedral, which is this beautiful, beautiful cathedral in Kirkwall, which is the capital of Orkney. And, you know, they they began, you know, its foundations were laid in like 1137. So it's a very old construction. And being able to visit that space and see where they kept people who were incarcerated during the witch trials in Orkney in the 17th century seeing the double hangman's ladder that the accused, well, the convicted climbed um, up to the gallows um, and visiting the site where they were executed, which at the time that we were there hadn't had a memorial built yet. Um, I think they've since added a sundial. But when we went, it was just this little grassy patch in the middle of a very suburban kind of mundane street. And something about that juxtaposition and something about the physicality of the ladder and the space and the side of these executions just really stayed with me when I came back to Australia. And I was also very struck by the way that climate change was impacting Orkney and the way that it's impacting Australia, where two Mm. geographical locations that are at the forefront of climate change. And as someone who grows a lot of their own food and grows flowers um, that we sell to florists and that sort of thing, where it's very entwined with our everyday life. So that was very much in the forefront of my brain. And it took having a baby and being a little bit delirious to actually start getting the words down on the paper. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it was a really wild book to write. Um, mm-hmm. I had quite a few moments where I wasn't sure that I'd actually finish it because it felt very large and intimidating. But um, I was very happy to, very happy to actually um, get to the end of that. Do you tend to have like characters or scenes that come to you first? Yeah, so for me, it'll often be these very visceral flickers of scenes and a sense of mood and understanding how the characters would react in a certain situation. Those are sort of the key things that give me the the pulse of the story in those early stages. And one of my favourite parts of rewriting and editing as I progress along is actually going back to those earlier scenes and because I'm suddenly more familiar with the characters, being able to tweak, you know, yeah. the very specific turn of phrase they have or the things they notice in a particular scene. And Salt and Skin is written from, oh, golly, um, five or five different perspectives, possibly six. I don't know. I've repressed that. <laughs> um, so that was really that was really important to me to be really clear on, you know, what the characters would notice when they walked into a particular space or, mm. you know, ventured to a particular location on the islands. I find it fascinating that you can, as you were talking about, like you were talking about like mood and things and the novel itself is so atmospheric. It's actually ridiculous. Like you are so immersed in this mm. book from the second you open it. And it kind of, At moments, it can feel really claustrophobic and insular. And then there are like these moments of like clarity and openness and breathiness and space that I think like you wouldn't you wouldn't believe could happen. And yet somehow our characters get us there. And there's also like an underlying like menace sometimes and disquiet. And you create this with such skill. How important was it for you to like capture that atmosphere for the islands and the book overall, really? Firstly, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And secondly, how I portrayed the land and the place and doing justice to those things in the book was really important to me. I really wanted the place to feel like a really active participant in the story, not just a backdrop to Mm. human actions and interactions and drama. And it was a really weird writing process because most of it was written during lockdowns and wow. in Melbourne, where we're about a bit over an hour outside of Melbourne, our closest capital city, but we still count as being part of the city. So we were in the very long, 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 long lockdowns. So yeah, most of it was written during lockdowns. And it was kind of a bit jarring because where I live is very, very disparate landscape to Orkney. You know, it's it's very lush where we are. It's very green. There's all mountain ash, those huge, huge eucalyptus and tree ferns and lyrebirds. And it's very hilly. And, you know, it's even just like the colours are just completely different. So I think it might have been harder for me in a way if I was just going about my everyday life. But because mm. I was in lockdown and I was kind of able to put so much energy and attention towards inhabiting that space, it almost became a bit dreamlike for me. I mean, ideally, I was meant to, I got funding, I was meant to go back to Orkney to do more research and talk to people and, you know, work on my first draft over there. But yeah, COVID got in the way, unfortunately. Oh, that's so frustrating. But I do think, I do think that a lot of what your, a lot of what the atmosphere does for the reader may have well have been informed by how we all kind of felt during lockdown and the pandemic because we did all feel kind of isolated and away from everybody and you know communities became very important you know and this book does kind of explore communities and everyone being in each other's pockets really well and it's definitely a the the atmosphere for me was just like one of the best parts of the book it was just so so immersive it was brilliant well, thank you. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'd, I'd literally just get paid to give you compliments. That's it. Oh, I, I'm up for it. <laughs> so as, as Lydia said, it is obviously a very uh, atmospheric novel. And I think this is felt throughout the novel, not only by, by the characters and the community that Lydia was just describing, but also by the by the natural world around them too you know we have the the cliffs and the sea and the animals that inhabit the sea and I feel like all of these things add to the atmosphere and and make the the natural world almost like a character in and of itself I don't know if you would put animals within that natural world category but I am doing that I was curious did you consciously want the natural world to feel like a character yeah, that was really important to me. I wanted it to feel very fluid and very interactive and mm-hmm. very complex and changing, in part because there was that thread of climate change running through it. And I wanted to keep that thread subtle, but for me, it went hand in hand with creating quite a dynamic sense of place. But yeah, it was really important to me. And part of it was creating the landscape in and of itself, but I also wanted it to feed into and enhance that sense of menace and tension mm. that um, lingered in the community and in the interactions that the characters had with each other. And I think I hadn't actually thought about that point that you just raised about how we were quite isolated during COVID and how it possibly fed into the book, but also how we could be, you know, I know in my case, you know, living in someone else's pockets during lockdown, but at the same time feeling isolated, how you could be so physically close to like one people or, you know, a couple of people, but then feel lonely or feel that disconnect. And I think that's 
definitely something I subconsciously really woven into the book, you know, that this family is really living in this tiny little space and they're really confined and yet they they don't actually really talk to each other about anything meaningful or they can't communicate and say what needs to be said. Absolutely. And I think that's such a an important part of the book and a, an important part of certain characters, without giving too many spoilers, but certain characters' views on things and relationships and such, because it is it's this isolation that, that isn't just you know oh they're on their own they are surrounded by a community that either had her put this without giving too much away that are either kind of shunning them a little bit and kind of trying to put them in a box or you know trying to embrace them at the same time so it's it is fascinating and I do I think it it's gonna chime with a lot of people because I think that no matter what situations we've been in these past three years everyone's going to have felt a little bit of that I think. You were you were discussing climate change earlier and how important and pivotal it is to this book and as you said it's not it's not a book where it's kind of clobbers you over the head with climate change you know like here is this theme and deal with it you know it's really really well woven woven into the narrative and you know it has such an impact on the characters themselves and the inhabitants of the island why did you want this particular theme to to run throughout I think again climate change is something that I'm very preoccupied with and it is this Mm. really constant thread through my life and I think it's becoming a constant thread in more and more people's lives that awareness and that that it's almost like a constant little buzz in the back of your head that just for me anyway it never quite goes away Mm. and I was interested in you know how climate change is going to impact places like Magnus Cathedral, these sites of you know really long ago historic trauma, and you know how is it going to be impacted? How do we make sense of those spaces when it is impacted? And it's yeah, it was a, it was an interesting thing because it was I really really didn't want it to be a really well I couldn't have written it if it was an unrelentingly dark book, and I think that. I could have easily fallen into that trap with climate change because it is a very, you know, very frightening and dispiriting thing to grapple with. And so part of me actually getting through the writing process and finishing this book was being very mindful that it, it was this very important thread, but not letting it bleed out into and take over the the other threads in the narrative and to also have these moments of levity and humour and warmth and these other little subplots and these other little threads lingering in there. Because sometimes I think we can fall into the trap of thinking that putting those moments or having that juxtaposition between really dark topics and humour and warmth somehow takes away from the gravity. But I actually mm-hmm. think that that juxtaposition actually adds quite a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And it can help us understand those very dark things in a way that is harder in an unrelentingly dark story. I feel like climate change can be quite a a dense topic and it can be quite overwhelming when it's like trying to consume it as a topic like it is. It can be quite overwhelming. And some writing about climate change that I've read like has been quite dense. And I really felt like just what you were saying then, that they always feels like something buzzing around in the background for you like it definitely felt like that in the book that it's something that you couldn't really look away from but it was it was written in this way that's kind of accessible and easy to understand like okay this is like serious and this is what's happening and this is how it's going to impact all of these people that live in this community and this is how it's going to impact all of this land in all of these different ways 
and I just thought it was it was so well so well written and it was just it was just totally easy to understand and to grasp that kind of idea like you can't like a person that that kind of didn't like a denier of climate change couldn't really read this book and be and still stay with that logic they would have to be like okay yeah yeah (laughs) yeah see what's happening here (laughs) this is going to convince the masses So well done. <laughs> well done. Well done. Changing lives. You might, you might actually have uh, contributed to saving the planet at this point. I got to hope. Now, I, I really want to talk about, um, as we, as our listeners will have heard in our little intro of you, you are a person clearly of many talents and there's probably very little that you haven't done yet. And I wanted to talk about the fact that you have qualifications in in grief, loss and trauma counselling, which I found really interesting. And I know that is music to Lydia's ears because those are topics that she's very interested in so I'm sure she'll have multiple questions to ask after I've got into this it's a hyper focus but I felt like your writing of these topics was incredibly moving and evocative and conveyed beautifully how these things impact us as a people and how the, the, the complexities these things bring up in us and in the way that we interact with other people and the relationships that we have. I wanted to ask how you felt that your professional experience of these topics impacted the way that you wrote this book. I am so grateful that I did those studies. Um, I didn't think that anyone really made a living from writing. I mean, I'd sort of, you know, read the little author bios in my favourite books and they sort of seemed like another species that are completely inaccessible and very mysterious. And so I did psychology and counselling and I started working in drug and alcohol rehab with families where there were parental substance abuse issues, often domestic violence, mental health issues, those sorts of comorbidities and um, children. So it was it was very confronting work. But at the same time, I think it really changed how I viewed things. I became a lot more aware of the disparity between what people's lived experiences looked like and what the general dialogue is around things like grief and trauma and addiction. And I think that's definitely led into my work, you know, those big broad strokes and the things that are important to me to communicate. And one of those things, I won't I won't give spoilers, but um one of the main characters in Salt and Skin, you piece together slowly, has had a pretty horrific childhood trauma. And in a lot of novels, and I've done this in my previous novels, you know, you often have this backstory dangled in front of you early on and you we're nosy, nosy creatures, us readers. So we keep reading and we want to know what happened and why this character is the way that they they are. And you kind of, and then it all, you know, they'll, it's build up in this really climactic moment where they finally, you know, verbalize what they've been through to another character. And it's this moment of catharsis and healing and they, everything's a bit lighter and they can sort of move on with their lives. And what really struck me is in that clinical work that often people can't even articulate to themselves what they've been through, you know, let alone be able to string those sorts of experiences into something coherent enough to tell another person. And that sometimes trauma remains unspoken and it just remains as this lingering presence. And so even though you as a reader can piece together what this character's been through, I really wanted it 
in this I really wanted him in the story to never actually verbalize it mm-hmm. um, and he's still seen and he's still held and he's still valued and he still has all this potential you know thrilling potential that comes with being a young person and it's that was one thing that really was informed by the work that I've done and by the things that I've studied absolutely and I think that like you were talking about this kind of <laughs> what you write really well is the the inability to communicate what you're really feeling when you're going through grief or when you've got trauma because sometimes you just can't put it into words and especially with the ages that some of the characters are at you know we've got three characters that are in their adolescence and them kind of having to navigate how they feel after trauma and how they feel with grief and loss it's hard enough as an adult when we can try and logic things away and we can try and put reason into it and we can you know signpost ourselves to help or whatever but I think with the with the teenage characters it is very much kind of navigating through this like fog of like I don't really know where I am or what I'm doing but I'm kind of trying to figure this out and then when you put two of those characters together those for me were the most fascinating scenes when the the three kids were together or two of them were together because you could just see them having a a general conversation but so much around them was telling us so much so much more information and you have a real real skill for that because I think you know with grief and and trauma particularly like you said it doesn't have to be articulated to be there and to be present I think for me I'd like to ask a bit about you know how did you find writing the balance of like how much to give away how much not to give away you know how much you wanted to reveal about certain characters pasts and things like what was that like as a writing process intense (laughs) I can understand that (laughs) I'm a I'm a very chaotic very very fast writer and I'm pretty brutal with throwing things out so salt and skin ended up being about 108,000 words and during the editing process so mostly you know myself rereading it and um, then with later with the agent and publishers and that sort of thing um, 150,000 words were thrown out wow so I'm pretty brutal like I've got I also have ADHD, so if I'm re- if I'm rereading a scene and I feel my attention drift, it's out, like it's it's gone. Because I I don't know the story that I'm writing until I get the first draft down. So mm-hmm. often, you know, those scenes are kind of scaffolding that needs to be removed later. But anyway, what was really funny is that the thread of this particular character's trauma, I just I laboured over these specific lines you know whether I should describe this particular element of the room or this smell or whatever just these because it's if you threaded all of those little snippets together it would only be about a paragraph scattered throughout you know scattered throughout probably the first two-thirds of the book and it was a bit of an out-of-body experience for me (laughs) laboring over these particular lines and taking a word out and tweaking it and changing it um, because it was really important to me to get it right and to communicate it in a way that still felt true to the experience of trauma as mm-hmm. I understand it as, you know, someone who has had the, you know, I see it as a, as a privilege, you know, being privy to people's pain and their truth and their, their journeys. Um, and I think, you know, we have that with friends, but being able being trusted with that in a clinical role, you know, obviously you're serving a function, you're helping people, but it's still a, a big thing. So, yeah, I hope... 
I hope that all kind of worked. That thread was one of the most important threads in the whole book for me. I do think that you you wrote about that so well and it, there's like a little uh, war between me and Lydia on the kind of things that we like in books because I am incredibly nosy and Lydia like Lydia thinks the less you tell her the better and and I but I actually thought with this book for the first time Lydia I know yeah I thought it was much more powerful that it wasn't verbalized even though usually I would be like oh I really want them I really want to hear them say it I really want to know like but actually like working out for yourself made it a much more powerful reading experience and I think Mm. as Lydia was saying that it is sort of the nature of of grief and loss and not being able to put these things into words so yeah it was incredibly powerful Thank you. I'm proud of myself, bro. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for at once not texting me and going, but what happens? Tell me more. Great. That's Great. usually what I get, two o'clock in the morning. But what happened in the end? <laughs> so I would love to just chat about one of my favourite characters in the book, which is Luda. So a key moment in the beginning of the book, and this isn't giving too much away, but in the beginning of the book is an act of taking a photograph of a harrowing moment by Luda. And without giving too much away, this isn't a new thing for Luda. She does take pictures of kind of like the rawest moments in her life and of people around her and things. And, you know, she seems almost separated from reality when she picks up a camera. And, you know, she she it kind of separates her from the, the actual goings on around her. What do you think this tells us about her as a character and as a mother? Oh, Luda was so hard to write. I've talked about this quite a lot since the book came out, but how little capacity we have to sit with complex, difficult women in fiction mm. and trying to strike that balance with her of having her do these quite morally ambiguous things, but, you know, still kind of having this point of connection and and seeing her as, as still worthy of empathy. And oh, she was she was tricksy. She was so tricksy to write. I labour <laughs> over Luda. And I think I was really interested when I was writing Salt and Skin as a new mum about, you know, what... As a, as a parent, you know, what do you actually put of your children's story into the public space, you know, whether that's in social media or a, you know, magazine article or, or whatever. And, you know, just how fascinating it is how people find these different lines in the sand about what they feel is, com- you know, is, is an acceptable level of detail about their children to put into that space and you know, like some, particularly writers, some of my writer friends have, you know, I know what school their children go to. I've never met their children, but I know I know they do the karate. I know that they, <laughs> you know, like going camping. I know that they're allergic to this, you know, just the, the level of detail. And some of my writer friends, you know, looking at their social media and, you know, articles and things that they're writing, you wouldn't even know that they had children. And so I was grappling with that myself. And Luda is kind of a little bit of a hyper, hyper real exploration of that, because for her, everything justifies, everything can be justified by trying to raise awareness and, you know, combat climate change. She sees that as, you know, the central purpose of her life. And she has spent a lot of her time as a mother documenting her children's lives and their childhoods and taking, you know, just thousands and thousands of photos of them. But at the same time, she doesn't ever actually really see them or understand them or connect with them. Mm. And, you know, I was very, well, inspired might be the wrong word, but um, I was very intrigued by the artwork of 
Ameri- the American photographer Sally Mann. And um, she is a very, very iconic, very well-known, very divisive artist. And she took a lot of photos in the 80s of her children. There's one of the series is called Immediate Family and three children and they're photos of like the children naked and, you know, with cuts on their faces and, you know, the beds that they've urinated on and, you know, they're quite, they're beautiful, but they're quite confronting. And mm. I was really thinking about, you know, who who's protecting the rights of the child if mm. it's the parent transgressing those boundaries? And, you know, how how do we actually make sense of mothers who aren't just mothers who are juggling being artists or being, um, in Luda's case, a, you know, photojournalist, campaigner? Um, how do we how do we make space for that sort of duality? And I think that that complexity in it is what I found most fascinating because it was you know I think it's so so refreshing to read a female character who is complex and to a point where you do kind of not know how to feel about her you know you you make up an opinion within the first I'd say first couple of chapters like oh this is the type of person she is and then as time goes by and events happen that opinion completely gets flipped and gets changed and I think that everybody is going to have a slightly different take on Luda and it's I think this will be a great book for like book clubs Mm -hmm. and you know sitting around a table and being like so what I mean I know that me and Hannah have had like discussions that have been like oh right oh that's how you feel okay because it is just one of those one of those characters that you know she's divisive but also empathetic and she's sensitive but she's also completely chaotic (laughs) and I just thought you wrote her so well so she's definitely it's definitely worth reading the book just so that you can chat about Luda (laughs) yeah she's not a character that you'd forget in a heartbeat was she no (laughs) I'm always curious about um what it's like for writers in terms of letting go of characters like that because you obviously said it was intense writing about her so what is that like having to let that character go do you feel like her voice that the voices stay in your head or once the book is written are you kind of like let that go now for me it was a bit of a strange process I had been I worked really intensively on this book for three and a half years which is the longest I've spent on a novel and it was very entwined with me kind of relearning how to write um, as a mother because I no longer had the luxury of you know these fairly long stretches of time you know it's always things my time gets chopped up and I've got other things taking up mental space and I had to relearn how to write and I think initially it was almost there was a little bit of grief even though I was immensely relieved to have actually done it you know it it was a book it was a story you know, there's this lingering presence that suddenly becomes static. You know, I can't just have the characters living in my head and think, oh, I'm going to add this little bit of dialogue or I'm going to tweak that scene or this is a good scene to add as I'm doing the dishes or changing nappies or whatever it is. So in that way, they kind of die in a way. You know, they're suddenly, Mm. it's like butterflies that are suddenly stuck down on a board. You know, they're not going to change or grow creatively anymore. But then, you know, you suddenly have people like, you know, time is the most valuable thing that we have, right? And I just find it so astonishing when people, you know, spend their time reading this story that I wrote and then engaging with the characters and having thoughts about it. Like, it's astonishing. It's magic. And, you know, so they sort of take on a life of their own mm-hmm. and people's opinions and that the way that the ways that I think people pick up on things that you weren't consciously aware of when you were writing the story. So it's it's such a, like, it's such a privilege. 
<laughs> to be able to you know have people engage with your work so yeah that was that was a very long answer but um no yeah, so we love a long answer don't do. worry <laughs> we love it now I want to ask about I want to ask a question about your book in terms of genre because I found that, <laughs> she's already laughing <laughs> um, yeah so yeah your your novel feels like a sort of an, an amalgamation I think is the, maybe the right word of genres but I definitely felt this sense of maybe like magical realism with the the character especially of, of Theo who I think is one of the most fascinating characters that I've read and he's described in in various ways and and there's a real curiosity about him from from the community that, that they live in, about where Theo comes from and how he can be, de- what he can be described as and what he actually is. And I also felt that there's, I mean, you spoke briefly earlier about the, the witch trials and there's obviously that element of historical fiction. What drew you to writing about these particular ideas? And did you know that you were having this sort of mixing part of genres whilst you were writing it? Yeah, I have, I have no idea what genre this book is. <laughs> Anytime anyone... <laughs> sort of categorizes it I'm like oh okay go with that for a little while um I I need to stop I keep referring to it and I have been referring to it for like four and a half years now as my weird witchy book um and I probably <laughs> find something um a little bit more cerebral to refer to it as so I think for me these really big topics like climate change and grief and trauma can can be kind of limited by realism sometimes and I read a huge amount of realism there are astonishing examples of books and novels that have actually you know that just explore it exquisitely but for me and how I conceptualize it I just felt like I wanted to explore them using these fantastical magical elements and I wanted it to be quite liminal. I wanted it to be kind of choose your own adventure in a way because you can go into Salt and Skin and read it and actually embrace the more mundane explanations for these kind of ghostly, magical, folkloric elements or you can lean into the magic of it. And I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun weaving those things in. And, you know, part of it, um, so Theo, um, I drew on a lot of Selkie folklore. That's something I've been really preoccupied with since I was a kid. I just, something about, Selkies. So if anyone's unfamiliar, it's, you know, the seal people. So people that, you know, grieve first seals when they're in the water and then they come up onto the beach and shed their skin and dance. And a lot of the stories are about, you know, women's Selkies having their skin stolen while they're on land and then being trapped into marriage and childbearing. And um, often they'll find their skin, you know, a decade later or something and go back to the sea. And I was interested in how these fantastical elements kind of play with these binaries so you know I think the selkie folklore kind of exists between nature and human and you know Mm. there's that ghostly element that lingers between you know death and livingness and you know the witch element you know the and and the way that the history of the witch trials bleeds into the present so you know that breaking down of chronology so I wanted to just play with those things and Mm -hmm. explore and um, I mean I think a lot of the things I've done with this story was just me entertaining myself (laughs) basically (laughs) I love that. <laughs> I, I think as well, the great thing about this book is, I mean, I work in a bookshop, so I do a lot of like recommendations to people. And the great thing about this book is that you could literally recommend it to anybody depending on their taste. And that's what's great about it because literally like a historical fiction fan's going to love this. A magical realist fan's going to love this. People that love, you know, fiction and realism are going to love this. And there's so much for everyone in it. And I think there is the danger when there's a book like that 
of it kind of becoming a mishmash and it not quite making sense or you know it not quite slotting into to what you want it to be but because of how well you've written it and because of how great the content is you just go with it and I love that I love that it's kind of like chaotic energy but it's so so (laughs) worth it it's amazing but in the best way possible (laughs) but in the best way possible this is it it's like exactly what you want you know and so if you are like me and you love a pick and mix like this is it I think it makes your genres. Pick a mix of sweet. It makes sense. Pick and mix should be on the cover, I think. Yeah, I, think so. I love that. <laughs> Pick a mix. Picture of my face. Yeah, perfect. I want credit, obviously. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> lastly, finally, before I let you go, because I will let you go. Don't worry, you're not trapped. <laughs> I would just love to applaud you again on how well you wrote the relationship and friendship between Theo and Darcy. Their kind of co-mingling and, and cohabitating kind of situation was just hysterical and brilliant and beautiful. We see them both as young men trying to kind of navigate their feelings and actions towards one another to, you know, varying degrees of success. <laughs> They are so kind of, I think, compressed by all these these external elements that their their friendship becomes so pressurized. It's like this little pressure cooker of of feelings and them not being able to talk to each other. Without spoilers, what was it like to explore their relationship to each other and and you know how difficult was it to kind of write their interactions because they're so good. <laughs> oh, pressure cooker is just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> They are so in a little pressure cooker. Um, yeah. They they were really fascinating. They were two characters that really took on a life of their own. And I think when I started writing them, I was really struck by the idea of Theo washing up and having, you know, no documentation and no um, memory of where he'd been before he was six. And, mm-hmm. you know, his foster mother being really against him being photographed because of the media attention that had occurred after he was found. And she didn't want them to get leaked. She didn't want him to be vulnerable in that way so she kind of really came down hard and like no photos versus Darcy who has had you know every so many moments of his life documented by his mother that doesn't really see him and what it's like for them to actually connect and I'm really fascinated by adolescence just in terms of characterization and I'm really fascinated by the ways that you know teenagers kind of are perpetuating these patterns from childhood but at the same time forging these new patterns that are going to take them into adulthood and how these very disparate patterns kind of collide with each other and interact and the effects that that has on their relationships and their sense of self and all the rest of it. And um, I think they were just like the the ultimate kind of adolescence, just, you know, so so full of feelings and so drawn to each other and so able to see each other but not able to talk about it or communicate what needed to be said for most of the story. Mm. But I was very clear on where I wanted them to head and I was very clear on the the key moments that I wanted to explore with them. So Mm -hmm. they they were a joy to write. I mean, they are, without giving too much away, they are my favourite people. I just love it. A beautiful relationship, friendship, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. I'm just obsessed with them and I was really rooting for them the whole way through. Yeah. It made me very emotional. (laughs) Don't, because I'll cry. We know I will. We know know I'll cry, so let's not. (laughs) So, unfortunately, we have to let Eliza go now, which is very upsetting. 
But if it wasn't already obvious, we we loved Salt and Skin and we highly recommend that our lovely listeners pick themselves up a copy ASAP so that we can discuss this with you all because I just feel like this is a book, like Lydia said before, it's just going to provoke so many great conversations and you know, not only about climate change and topics of like grief and trauma and there's just so much, there's so many things that you could discuss with this book. And as Eliza said before about Luda being a morally ambiguous character, we we know through our experience being on Bookstagram, how many people <laughs> love a morally ambiguous woman in a book. So <laughs> I just feel like so many people are going to love this book. But before we actually let you go, we need to get some recommendations from you. So is there anything that you've been enjoying recently that you would like to share? Oh, goodness me. Um, I have I actually recently read uh, The Situation in the Story, the whole book by Vivian Gotnick, which is, you know, about constructing personal um, essays and memoirs. So for any writers out there, that was a really, really great book. And I also recently read and really love oh, Peter Darling by Austin Chan. And I it was a um kind of like a, a queer trans retelling of Peter Pan and Captain Hook. Really, really enjoyed oh, that. Oh, fab. That sounds good. Yeah, it does. Um, and, yeah, my, my sad little brain has short-circuited. <laughs> and I <laughs> will no doubt be sitting bolt upright in my bed at 2 a.m. thinking <laughs> of all the things that I have been reading and watching and enjoying lately. <laughs> No, we love it. You've given us two. You've given us two recommendations. That's that's good enough for us. (laughs) (laughs) Eliza, thank you so much for coming on a pair of bookends. I've absolutely loved this conversation, and I think so many people are going to take so much from it and find everything that you've got to say about your writing process and about this book so interesting. So thank you. Thank Thank you so much much for having me, and thank you for reading. (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners. I will pop a link in the show notes for you to buy yourselves a copy of this book. As we said earlier, it is available all over now. It's available in the UK, the US, Australia and New Zealand, you lucky things. So I will try and pop links to buy copies in all of those places. But yeah, as I said, it's out now. And Eliza, where can our listeners follow you online if they wish to? I'm mostly loitering around on Instagram and I'm just Eliza Henry Jones on there, on Twitter, a bit more sporadically. Um, And I've also got a website website which is just elizahenryjones.com so amazing where I'm normally lurking (laughs) Um, and listeners if you wish to follow us you can do so at parabookends pod on instagram and threads and at parabookends on twitter and tiktok please if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to review and subscribe so we can reach more listeners and that is all from us so thank you so much once again eliza and thank you listeners for listening Bye. bye